South Asians account for 60% out of the whole world's heart disease patients. That's an insanely high proportion, and that's why today's episode is extremely important and a must-listen. Before we start this episode, we have a special offer for our listeners. You can get $50 off one of South Asian Heart Center's programs if you provide Brown Woman Health as a referral source. Welcome to the Brown Woman Health Podcast. I'm Rithika, a new intern currently in my gap year applying to medical school in the upcoming 2024 cycle. And I'm so excited to be here with my co-host, Amik. Today, we're going to be diving into an important topic that affects the South Asian community, heart health. Yeah, I'm really thrilled to be on this episode today, Rithika, and also welcome to the Brown Woman Health Podcast. I know it's your first episode as well. Um, Heart disease is a major health concern for South Asians, and it's something that we really need to talk about more openly and honestly. So this podcast episode is essential. Absolutely. And it's not just older South Asians who are at risk of heart disease, but also younger adults and even children. That's so true. We often think that it's only something that affects older people. And it's not just about awareness, but it's also action. We need to start taking our heart health seriously and making changes in our lifestyle to reduce the risk of heart disease. So, so true. And today's episode, we'll really cover that. Something else that's really important that we're going to be exploring today is the impact of heart disease specifically on South Asian women. So South Asian women are often overlooked when it comes to discussions around heart health, and we want to change that. Uh, We need to start recognizing the unique challenges that South Asian women face when it comes to heart health and start taking actions to address them. And we have the perfect guest to help us do that today. Ashish Mathur is the founder of the South Asian Heart Center, and today he's joining us to share his expertise and insights on this very important topic. Ashish has been a leader in the field of heart health for many years, and we're so excited to hear about the work that he does with the SAHC in order to help reduce the high rates of heart disease among South Asians. So welcome to our show, Ashish. Could you introduce yourself in the South Asian Heart Center? So the South Asian Heart Center was started at El Camino Health in 2006 with the mission to reduce the high incidence of heart disease and diabetes within South Asians. And to do so with culturally tailored, lifestyle-focused, and evidence-based services. So we created the South Asian Heart Center to address the disproportionate risk of having a heart attack as a South Asian. And we have, um, you asked me, you know, what motivated me to kind of, uh, you know, look at creating the South Asian Heart Center. So I... Um, At the age of 44, I had a heart attack myself. And that heart attack was my calling. I mean, I was wondering why at the age of 44 should I have had a heart attack? As I read the literature, I found that people of other ethnicities, uh, the average age for the first heart attacks is 65 years in men and 70 years in women. And so at 44, I was too young to have a heart attack. And now I was really scared that you know, what happens, uh, you know, if I have a second heart attack, I survived the first one. What should, uh, you know, I do? And as I read the literature, I found that, you know, the traditional guidelines underestimate the risk for heart attacks in South Asians. And so I read through what additional things I needed to do to screen and to determine my risk. And at the same time, I read literature and hundreds of books 
on reversing heart disease. I was very motivated to kind of make a change. And as I started implementing the changes that they were looking at, mostly it was all around lifestyle. I found that not everything that they were talking about was working for me. And that I had to modify things that I read in books, recipes that I got from the books, um, etc., with different things to get my blood levels, cholesterol, etc., into the normal ranges. And that was also a revelation for me. And so as I, it was interesting that, um, um, you know, six months after my heart attack, I was celebrating my birthday at work. And my group was kind of, you know, was there celebrating. And then one of the um, uh, colleagues came up to me and said, you know, Ashish, we are really happy that you are here today with us. And that to me was kind of the starting point for me to look at what really happened to me. And am I destined to kind of work on this a little bit more than just myself? and whether I should be actually looking at what I've done to prevent a heart attack and being share that knowledge with others. And what I found at El Camino Health is that um, they were, in, I, I got my you know, treatment at El Camino Health. Uh, and, and so they invited me to kind of look at this issue in a, in a larger way. And they looked at the statistics of Indians that were showing up actually in emergency in the El Camino Health emergency room with heart attacks, and it was disproportionate to the size of the district population and the size of the South Asian population within the district. Um, and these individuals were all individuals that were young in their late 30s, early 40s, etc. Whereas heart attacks in other populations were happening on an average at much older ages. And so they held a community gathering. They invited physicians and community members. And I joined that. And I found a home for what I was wanting to do. And so I started spending time on this and actually got the whole group and together, got physicians together to actually start the South Asian Heart Center. And so we are here. And, and it's a nonprofit initiative at, South Asian, at El Camino Health to address this issue and get South Asians within the district, within the population in Santa Clara County and beyond to look at uh, this, this in a much more meaningful, structured kind of way. Uh, and, 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 and we are making a difference within the community. Thank you so much for sharing that. And especially, you know, talking about how in our community it happens at a younger age, like heart attacks and a lot of heart disease. So could you talk a little bit more on how um, heart disease can impact younger people and what steps they take to prevent it, especially because um, you did speak about how um, SAHC is culturally tailored. Um, so what is some of that research that you found that after you went through what you went through, um, is something that you learned and decided was important to impart to the rest of the South Asian community? Well, first of all, um, three out of every five individuals with heart disease is an Indian. So that's 60% of the heart disease burden. And by the year 2030, it is predicted that 50% of the diabetes burden, which will be one in two people with diabetes, will be of Indian origin. 
So those are kind of the stats that we are kind of facing with. And then this is happening at younger ages, right? So 25% of the heart attacks occur before the age of 40. And, you know, 50% of the heart attacks occur before the age of 55. And so that's 10 to 15 years ahead of the non-South Asian community. Right? So that's how early it's setting in. And we don't really know all of the reasons for why it is early. All that we do know is that, that we start seeing metabolic disorders in individuals of younger ages. Okay, so that's why it's so important to get tested early. And then the other part of it is that people believe that, you know, they are vegetarians, they are non-smoking, and so they are protected. And that is not true. Well, the smoking part, I'll kind of give them that if they don't smoke, that's great because that's truly a huge risk factor for having heart disease. But the vegetarian part is a myth in that we are a carbohydrate-focused you know, population and we do simple carbohydrates and we do saturated fats in our diet, right? And that type of vegetarianism is actually not heart healthy. So that learning and that awareness to understand what foods um, you know, make it a healthy vegetarian diet, number one, but also how I, as an individual, uh, am impacted by these foods. How do they affect me uh, is also important to understand. So not only it's, we, we call it the dinner versus the diner. Obviously, the dinner is important and people most focus on that. But you also have to focus on it as a diner because things that happen to you may not be the same things that happen to somebody else from the metabolism, from the sense of metabolism. So that's uh, something that culturally we, we need to kind of address within the population. The food is so centric um, in, in this population and people are very passionate about their Indian heritage and the kinds of foods and how they are cooked, etc. And what we try to tell individuals is that you do not have to give up on your favorite foods. That's what people think. I have to give up on all my favorite foods. It isn't the case. You just have to make minor adjustments to that and it makes and, and does all of the wonders. So simply, you know, how much sugar you're going to kind of use, what type of oils you're going to kind of use, how much of these you're going to use are all things that can be adjusted without changing, you know, the level of spice or the aromas and the other aspects of the food that we like. And that's just food alone. There are other aspects of lifestyle that we can kind of talk about as well that are part of the culture, but really not encouraged or embraced in a way that they should. You know, and meditation is one of them. So we can talk about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, so you did talk a little bit about the food modifications. And I know you were um, speaking a little bit about diabetes as well. So I just was curious, can you talk a little bit more about that connection between heart disease, diabetes, and like sugar intake? And um, what are some of the modifications that you yourself might have done um, to improve your heart health? 
So, um, so we all always have considered that diabetes is a risk factor for heart disease. Okay. But what we are finding at the South Asian Heart Center is that that is not necessarily the case. There are underlying metabolic disorders that cause and manifest themselves as diabetes in some individuals or heart disease in another or both. Okay. And it's the same kind of um, uh, mechanism that's kind of getting them there. So you might have heard of the term metabolic syndrome. And we are finding that the three important things that differentiate this risk in South Asians are your BMI, body mass index, your fasting blood sugar levels, and diastolic blood pressure. So those are kind of three of the five um, aspects of metabolic syndrome. And BMI is very tricky because outwardly, individuals might not appear as obese or even, uh, you know, abnormally fat. Yeah. Um, but they carry the weight distribution differently from other individuals. And that's kind of what puts them at risk. You may have heard the term about visceral fat or fat that surrounds the organs as opposed to subcutaneous fat, which is the fat under the skin. And so we have a lot of that visceral fat um, accumulation. And it may not completely manifest itself in the weight immediately, although individuals tend to kind of put on weight and they might be tottering around normal BMIs that um, you know is 25 for the general population, but for the for South Asians now, it's a little bit more stringent and the BMI cutoff is 23. Oh. And so getting to know where your BMI is, the two point difference in BMI means a whole lot of difference in weight. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so that's something that we um, focus with individuals on and we kind of work with them. And it is, it is to lose weight in a healthy way, right? To lose it not as a crash kind of diet that you get onto, and a lot of people do that. And what we find with those crash diets or extreme diets is that they totter back immediately into maybe larger weight gain after a period of time. And so we, we work on those uh, aspects with individuals uh, so that they can make more sustainable weight change. And it's not the total, you know, pounds of weight that you lose so long as you are kind of losing it steadily and can kind of keep your weight to, to an optimal number. So those are kind of three things that I would say. And, and diabetes is a very um, chronic kind of issues. If, if you have family history of diabetes, it's very likely that you will have diabetes as well. And so the simple changes that you can kind of start looking at, which is very difficult for individuals, uh, for example, with me, was to first look at my sugar intake in, 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 in things like tea or coffee. And culturally, I mean, we are, we are used to our, you know, sugar-laced tea in the morning, and then we'll have another cup at 11 o'clock in the afternoon and one at four o'clock, uh, you know, as well. And, um, and all of them have kind of added sugars. Maybe it's a spoon of sugar, maybe it's two spoons of sugar. And I, I know of individuals that who, who put in many more kind of, you know, uh, spoons of sugar in their, in their tea, or, tea or coffee. And so one of the things, and this is kind of the beauty of the approach that we use, we call it the baby step method. So we 
ask individuals to start reducing their sugar amounts by just a little bit at a time. And we kind of go through periods of time where they are continuing to have sugar, but they're just reducing it a little bit at a time. So for two weeks, they might cut about a quarter spoon. And then for another two weeks, they might cut about half a spoon, etc. Some people at that point are ready to cut more because they're finding that this new taste is actually appealing to them. Yeah. And so then they continue making the change. And, you know, uh, uh, lo and behold, most individuals start on this track. As a matter of fact, one woman who was kind of with us when we mentioned that, you know, we're going to start working with your team. Okay. And will that be okay for you? And she says, well, what do I have to do? And we said that, you know, we're going to cut the sugar a little bit. And we, our coach had just mentioned that over the phone. And the woman started crying. I mean, obviously, it was so near and dear to her. And so we said, okay, we don't have to work on this one. We can kind of start with something else. And so we always look at what people are ready to work on rather than forcing them into a specific way because that forcing has never worked. They have to kind of want something that they are. So they might say that, okay, you know, can I work on exercise? You know, let's leave the food alone. We can kind of work on physical activity. And we'll start with that and kind of make baby step changes. <laughs> we have so many people who come to the South Asian Center with zero minutes of physical activity per week. Zero, literally. And you tend to think, you know, who in this day and age would have zero minutes of physical activity when there's so much data that's out there showing that you know you need to regularly exercise etc but they do and they'll tell us that don't they don't have any time during the day to to exercise and so um, that's our challenge as we kind of get along and we find that 60 to 70 percent of those individuals will be at the target of 150 minutes of exercise by the end of the year uh, of the program that we have so you, uh, thank you so much for that. I actually had a follow-up regarding, you know, you, you're explaining the difficulties that you face trying to elaborate more on the fitness aspect, because while diet is definitely an important thing to pay attention to and being able to lower your intake of sugar a little bit each day or any type of, I guess, unhealthy diet practices, trying to just make small steps throughout the day. What are some modifications in the fitness lifestyle aspect? Like you said, that people are very busy. They're working like eight to five, nine to five jobs, have family, have kids to take care of. How can they incorporate small practices of, like you elaborated on meditation or daily exercise, such as walking? What is there? Are there any things that um, you guys have come up with, with like I would like I would say the small steps towards the fitness aspect. Absolutely. So our program, which is called Aim to Prevent, has a core platform which is called Meds, M-E-D-S. Okay, and M-E-D-S stands for meditation, exercise, diet, and sleep. Those are kind of the four lifestyle components that we we educate our um, participants around. And people who come to the South Asian Heart Center seeking help are called participants, not patients. We are trying to prevent them from becoming heart disease or diabetes patients, right? So they are participants, they are volunteers into this program, literally. 
And so um, we, we have simplified the science behind these lifestyle practices into very practical ways of remembering what needs to be done. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with diet because only because that in people's minds, it's like the most important aspect. And so with the, with the diet, our mantra is more greens than grains. All right, and if people just remember that, and as they decorate their plates, look at kind of having more greens than grains on their plate, they have already made the adjustment. It could be exactly the same foods that they eat. It's just a different proportion on their plate. All right, so more greens and grains. And we have netted out the goals as zero, one, two, 12. Zero, one, two, 12. And so that is again, an easy way for them to remember the goals. So zero is for, and this is the only thing that we say zero to, is sugary drinks or drinks that have added sugars in them. And the biggest culprits ends up being the tea and coffee that they drink, although they get it from, you know, the colas and the uh, soft drinks, etc., and everything else, every kind of juice that's out there has added sugars in it, right? So we say zero to that. The one is for one fistful of fruit. The one fistful of fruit is, um, you know, the size of your fist, outside of the fist, not the stuff inside, but the outside. And that's the amount of fruit that you need to have per day. Two fistful of vegetables. That's the amount of cooked vegetables that you can have during the day, or you should be having it at a minimum. And you can have much more of this component. And then 12 nuts. So if you look at walnuts or almonds, um, there is a measure for that as well, but you know it counts up to 12. And the reason for limiting your nut intake, although you want to have it on a daily basis, is that they are packed with calories and they are, they, you can easily put on weight with you know, added consumption of nuts. And so people kind of are having or chugging nuts and they don't know how much it is, so we want them to measure it out and have that. So zero, one to 12, so it's just simple. It's in that uh, simple kind of structured methodology for diet, there is so much science that is actually built in but it's easy for people to remember. Um, let's look at meditation. Meditation is actually a core yogic practice, right? A lot of people gravitate towards yoga, but they gravitate towards yoga asanas, right? Which is the main form of yoga that people actually recognize. But yoga, there are eight limbs of yoga. Breathing, is also part of yoga, right? So pranayam, you might have heard, is techniques for better health by doing very structured breathing techniques, just like you do stretching and balancing through yoga asanas. You do uh, specific kinds of breathing exercises to build your lung capacity, to build and, and oxygenate your body in a much larger way through these specific techniques. And actually also, you use breathing to bring about stress reduction. So that's a yogic practice, it's pranayam as we know it. Meditation is also part of the yogic practice and that is samadhi. 
So that's a, uh, a third limb of yoga, where you, you learn how to get into the state. And the only time that you will be in the state of complete balance and zero activity, and it has to be done while you're awake. And it has tremendous health benefits. People normally gravitate towards meditation as a spiritual exercise, right? They think, you know, as they are spiritually inclined, they'll take up on meditation because it brings them inner peace and calm and they connect with themselves and the universe through the practice of meditation. And this need for spirituality may not come until you are of a certain age, until you kind of get that inner desire to be spiritually inclined. So what we educate individuals around is only the health benefits of meditation and why embracing meditation early in life for reasons of health can make a tremendous amount of difference. In a study, it was found that 48% of heart attacks in individuals that have suffered an event before can be reduced with meditation compared to health education alone. And that is kind of, that's like half the heart attacks can be prevented, secondary heart attacks can be prevented with meditation. We already know of many studies that show the impact of meditation and blood pressure in reducing both systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And I had mentioned diastolic blood pressure as one of the core uh, components of metabolic syndrome that we know um, adds to the risk in these individuals. So, so this practice of meditation, when you do that, you'll find that during the time of that meditation, you are in complete silence within the body. You are in the suspended animation, literally your cellular biology is at complete rest and balance. Why? Because you have created an environment where the body is not in its sympathetic nervous system response of fight and flight. And this balance brings about the rest that your cellular biology needs to actually do the work that they do when they are challenged and when things needed to be, need to be done when you are active. Even in sleep, you're not able to get this level of deep, profound rest as you can get with meditation. So we educate individuals around that. And we are happy to say that a lot of individuals start their meditation practice for the first time, hearing us and kind of, you know, getting the resources that they need to start on meditation. The other area that's very overlooked is around sleep. And individuals culturally feel that they are okay with six hours of sleep. This is an area that I struggle with myself constantly. And I have to kind of do very many things to kind of get my adequate hours of sleep. But sleep is a huge cause of obesity because people who don't get enough sleep will be eating more and not exercising two things that will cause their weight to gain as well so getting the eight hours of sleep i know i meet up with a lot of clinical interns who come to the south asian heart center and i ask them this question and they are sleep deprived because they are so 
you know, I mean, they have to kind of work they, uh, and get good grades and study for medical school and all of that sort of a thing. And of course, they have to have their social life as well. So blending all of that leaves little time for sleep. And it's okay, perhaps, as you do it as a student, but as soon as you kind of get into the workplace where you are expected to perform a full day's worth of work and be productive and stuff like that, getting your eight hours is going to be very important. And so the folks that suffer from lack of sleep are new parents who haven't kind of yet created a environment for getting their hours of sleep. And they have not sought enough help from parents and others to be able to kind of, you know, get get back on track. We found, find individuals who are ambitious, who are in the workplace, who want to kind of excel, be entrepreneurs, etc. And you'll hear this, so many young entrepreneurs that die early due to heart attacks. And that's because they're not really getting enough sleep. They are kind of working the midnight oil. They're, and today's world, you're kind of working time zones. And, and that's kind of causing, you know, an imbalance. So educating individuals around the science of sleep and getting, you know, experts in science to actually address our audiences is really, really important. And so, so sleep becomes a very, very important aspect as well. And meditation and sleep are two components of rest that we want people to embrace in a much larger way to reduce this twin epidemics in the, in the community. Did that answer your question around lifestyle and, and what's, what's additionally required? And, you know, the one thing that I will say, meds does not include the smoking aspect or tobacco use. And I would say that, you know, smoking will be the single most, you know, biggest thing. Studies have shown that, you know, 34% of the benefit in reducing heart disease comes from stopping smoking only. Wow. It's a large kind of number. And if you stop smoking within a year, your risk would have become half of your risk. So it's a very, very powerful way to reduce risk. We find at the South Asian Heart Center that individuals don't come, not many people come with smoking as an issue. Mm -hmm. But we know that there is an issue. Culturally, individuals suppress it, don't talk about it, etc. Their parents don't know about it, right? I mean, they do it in kind of very trustworthy circles, etc. And so that is an issue that uh, is, is culturally um, present and, and needs to be kind of addressed. And the earlier you do it, the, the greater the benefits. Also chewing tobacco. In our culture, you know, we have been exposed to Pan Bahar. I do not know if you have heard about that, but uh, it's out there. And, you know, there's tobacco-laced uh, products that are out there. And I know individually of people who have suffered from mouth and tongue cancers um, who have had, you know, these tobacco products or, you know, the chewing products um, in their lives. Yeah, the, there's um, now there's some research happening, I think, regarding like like bond use and tobacco and the South Asian community. It's I think New York based, if I'm not wrong, but that's starting to come more into the light. And so thank you for sharing that as well. Um, there is research going on at Cal State Hayward. Oh, okay. Uh, and and uh, um, I know of the researcher who's been focusing on this particular issue in South awesome. Asia. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really important. Um, you did speak a little bit just now about um, 
uh, heart disease um, for, for at a younger age, like some preventative measures that can be taken. Um, like you mentioned, sleep is a huge one that people in college, medical school, early parenthood, all of that really um, don't have. Um, so along those lines, when it comes to screening for heart disease, we hear that earlier is often better. So can you talk to the importance of early screening, especially for um, people of our community? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the main thing that's affecting us is that it happens to us when we are younger and we are sicker of it early on. Um, you know, like I indicated, 25% of the heart attacks before the age of 40 and 50% uh, of the heart attacks before the age of 55. And so that's kind of, you know, one in two heart attacks before you are 55, before you're retired, before you've kind of, you know, even established your entire family. Because even at that age, you know, people are actually building up, you know, their families. So it can be very devastating. And so the need for early screening and not waiting for everything to become kind of normal or your VMI to become normal. I was talking to Priscilla before this saying that individuals actually don't join the program or the evaluation because they believe that they should do it when they have lost some weight. And I encourage them to do it before they have lost some weight because they will not understand their risk factors in a way that will make meaningful change unless they do it early. So that's the need for doing the screening early. The good news though is that even if you have not started on a lifestyle path, that even while doing it at older ages, any lifestyle change is actually going to be net positive. Okay, and so there is, it's never too late to actually start the work on lifestyle modification. Okay, so screen early. And if you've started your lifestyle journey early, great, because you've understood that. If you have not understood it and you still start it later in life, it will go, it is going to have a net benefit. So you don't have to wait till you actually have to start on medications. Very often people are motivated when the doctor says, okay, you need to go on medications. That's when it triggers for them that I should do something about it and do some lifestyle modification before I get to the medication. So there's a whole school of thought around that. There's also a whole school of thought saying that if these medications are so powerful, then why not just use the medications and forget the lifestyle, which is hard enough, you know, for it and let me enjoy my foods and let me enjoy my sedentary lifestyles. Well, the, the, <laughs> there are studies that show that 93% of the diabetes can be prevented with lifestyle modification alone. There is no medication that has been produced today that can boast of that much reduction, at yeah. most maybe 30%. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the, the um, National Diabetes Prevention Program study that was done showed that lifestyle modifications would reduce the incidence of diabetes by 58% compared to 30% with metformin, right? So that's twice as much benefit with lifestyle modification, right? And it could be as much as 93% if you followed all of the lifestyle modifications. Heart disease, 79 to 81% reduction in heart disease you know, 50 plus percent reduction in stroke and 36% in cancers with lifestyle modification alone. 
And so there isn't a medication that has been produced that will give you these sorts of changes. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. I feel like that's a really important mindset to have, like to focus on the preventative measures instead of taking all these medications later. Um, I think especially, you know, being someone in my 20s and like seeing people in their 30s, like if you make these changes, life could be a lot easier, I think, um, in the future. So thanks for sharing all of this. Um, I think, Rithika, do you, do you have a question, the next question? Yeah. So uh, we also wanted to include aspects of uh, women's health because as we work to raise awareness about heart disease, we often see images and messages that really only feature men. Can you talk about why it's important to recognize that heart disease also affects women and how we can work to ensure that messaging around heart health is inclusive of all genders? Well, there's a great study that has been done with um, different ethnicities in California. Uh, actually, uh, on on the rate of mortality um, with uh, heart disease. And South Asian women show up at the highest levels uh, with the highest amount of heart disease mortality in the state of California. And I was I was recounting that you know, as we started the South Asian Heart Center, when we would go out into the community and talk about this particular issue, and even talk about the fact that women were at great risk. Uh, women are protected from lots of diseases, including heart disease, uh, until uh, menopause. And then, of course, they have a, a larger amount of risk um, of developing heart disease. Um, but they do have a disease at younger ages and their symptoms of heart attacks are also or could also be different. So when we used to go out kind of talking about this within the community, it was amazing that um, the women in the audience would get up and tell us that, oh, they're going to sign up their husbands for the program. And they would never relate this issue to themselves, despite our kind of talking to them about it. And so their thoughts were always about protecting their husbands. And, and this, there is a cultural kind of connotation to this as well. Um, but we have worked hard to raise the number of women who are actually going through our program. And I'm pleased to say that we have been able to kind of up the needle on it. We've kind of given free programs to women. We have kind of gotten them at discounts. We have said that, you know, if both the husband and wife sign up, only one person has to pay. So, you know, those sorts of initiatives have really helped raise the percentage of women in the program, but they're not quite at, you know, equal levels yet. And I, I implore women, and I'm so glad that this is a great platform for women to listen to this and say, okay, I'm going to make a difference, not only to myself as I go through this program, but I start making a difference to the family because I am doing it. When the woman gets educated within the household about things that they need to do for their families, well, for themselves first, but as a result for their families, then everybody benefits. And what really makes a huge difference is the education that gets imparted to the children within the families. 
right? And they start seeing, I mean, I've got this beautiful story about one of our volunteers who is so passionate about the work that we do. She started this a long time ago. And, you know, there, were, there was a, this M&M dispenser that she had at home. And they could routinely go there and, and um, uh, get M&Ms. And they would, you know, be eating M&Ms all day long. And so she switched um, to fruit within their M&M dispenser. And so when they dispense stuff, fruit would come out. And so for, to start off with, there was an issue within the family that, you know, where are my M&Ms gone, right? Who stole my uh, M&Ms? But the family started realizing how good that was to kind of use and, um, and and made the change within the family to the extent that the child who's now grown and working out there donates to the South Asian Heart Center every single year. And so that's kind of a success story that I'd really like to repeat because uh, women can make that change and make that happen and influence their families. We, we call women the chief medical officer within the family or the family medical officer, the FMO uh, within within the families. So they have the power of making tremendous change and changing the course of the epidemic right there within their families. On that note, um, what are ways that, you know, me and Rithika are in our 20s, like how do we help create that change or influence for older members? Or in, an alternative is also how do women in our community make that change to create healthier heart habits? Um, yeah. What a beautiful question you ask, right? So, and you, you phrased it as that, how can we get the older members of our family to become heart healthy, right? So number one, I would say is that you become heart healthy and you may already be, right? But look at our program and actually join the program and experience it for itself. It's a one year long program. So people kind of shy away from that. Okay, I've got a lot of commitment into this program, but this is about your health. Right, so you're investing in your health. The cost of the program is only $299 for the whole year. And we begin by evaluating your risk. So we look at all the markers beyond the traditional guidelines that put you at risk and review those risks with you, okay? Then we create a plan, especially for you, and we give you a coach, all right? And then the coach works with you to kind of help you and facilitate you through the hard process of lifestyle change with meds as the platform in the background, right? And so you get trained over that period of year to kind of make that change. So that is something that you can do for yourself to kind of get started. But the single most important thing that you can do for your parents or other elders that are in your home, like your grandparents, etc is to involve them in your healthy activities, right? One thing that I can assure if you have parents, if parents are in your home or your grandparents are in your home, is to actually involve them in your activities. They will really love that. They, they yearn for more time with you, right? And so, Take them on walks. You know, when my daughter visits my home, she will never refuse when I ask her for the morning walk because she knows that in that way she's contributing to my health. 
you know so take them for a walk you know get 20 minutes of a walk when there wasn't one when there was 20 minutes of you know watching or binge watching some tv sh show or serial right you can just get them to walk with you and they'll really appreciate that time with you right and it's just to kind of walk it's not to kind of discuss the world or you know um, marriage or other things that you know parents get into those topics are off you're just kind of taking a walk and so um you know unless you are comfortable talking about those subjects i mean you know it's it's one way to ruin a walk when you kind of start talking about the things that you shouldn't be talking about uh, or or discussing so walk is a very easy thing to kind of get involved get, getting uh, you know your parents and other older adults in your in your household the other thing is look at what they are munching on during the day and replace those with the healthy alternatives and you'll get to learn a lot about those when you are part of the South Asian Art Center program. So you can easily bring about that change. The, the other thing that my kids do with me is meditate with me. So that's another time that you're spending with them and they appreciate that because you're together again. But it's also very powerful to meditate together. The, the energy of that meditation actually has a profound impact on everybody meditating together. So that's another area that you can do. Sleep and other things are kind of hard, but maybe retiring to bed if you if you like playing games, then that's a wonderful thing to kind of you know incorporate with older adults and parents uh, instead of TV watching, which is also a fun activity together. But you could kind of you know go to a card game and you can kind of do that and kind of call it a bedtime ritual early as well. So there are many opportunities for younger adults to kind of make a difference in the health of um, individuals. That social time can be very stress relieving. You know, when you are enjoying a game of cards or, uh, you know, there's so many kind of board games that you can look at uh, and do. Uh, some one of the activities that we do as a family when my kids are around is we like the Beatles, you know, songs from the Beatles. So we listen to them, but we also have this book um, which has the history of all of the Beatles songs and what kind of transpired the lyrics of those songs. So we just read those out to each other. And, and that is a time that we spend together and, and provide, you know, the social kind of um, uh, relationship building, but also enjoy the things that we enjoy together. So just those little things can be very therapeutic and have long-term benefit uh, for the age, for the health of aging parents and, and older adults. Yeah, I especially, when you brought up going on walks and how that's a bonding experience, I completely agree with that. I think that obviously, you know, I have two parents that are in the healthcare field. So they, you know, work the typical eight to five and finding the time to just, you know, be one-on-one -on -one time, that's that's so important, I think, just to establish a good relationship, especially, you know, as like Amik was saying, we're both in our early 20s, where we went to college, now we're going to medical school, you know, like we're not really going to be at home as much, but like for the last year and a half, I've really made it my goal to also go on half an hour to an hour long walk with both of my parents, or at least my mom every single day, because 
it's such a good practice and a nice way to get outside, have some fresh air, even be able to talk about whatever's on your mind. But I think it's a very healthy practice. Amazing. I really enjoy um, Ritika, right? Yes. Uh, what yeah. you're doing. I, I think that, you know, it's it. And, and if your mom were to recount the highlights of the day, it would be the time that she's walking with you. Yeah, I think I think it's so great because I, you know, like I never get the time during the day to, you know, talk to her about like how, like I said, I'm going into the medical field and I'm working on applications right now. I'm doing volunteering. I'm looking for into jobs, you know, not being able to discuss with her as much. But the 30 minutes to an hour that I get just being with her and outside, it's so comforting to me um, just knowing that time is fleeting. You don't, you know, you're going to regret not spending, you know, as much time with your parents before, obviously, like I go to medical school. Um, and also, like you said, like, it's just a good, healthy habit to have alongside with watching your diet, making sure that you guys are cooking healthy meals together, just taking that initiative as a daughter, like the, the eldest daughter in, our, in my household. Um, that's something that's super important to me. It's priceless. Keep doing it. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that will change. I mean, it it really impacts, you know, the the behavioral health. This, you know, the the mental health is really important. You know, and and that togetherness um, will will certainly help in a very very large way. Right. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. I think, you know, we've learned so much from this episode. And I think a lot of it was like actionable insights, as well as these numbers that are like, absolutely alarming, especially at the beginning, what you shared about age and heart health. Um, and then the diabetes connection, which is I know huge. And then the, the example with chai, like, I know, like, for my household, like we drink at least two, three cups a day. Um, so that's been something I've grown up with. And like, definitely the sugar intake with that has decreased throughout the years. And I think it's because you're realizing, you know, the sugar isn't good for us. Um, and so I'm so glad that you shared that. And it's not an easy thing to, you know, it's, it's definitely a baby steps method that you need to employ. Otherwise, it never is a sustainable habit. So thank you. Um, I think, I mean, those are all the questions that we had for you today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share um, just as we wrap up the podcast? Well, one, one of the last question that you had is, you know, what words of wisdom beyond yeah. kind of what we have talked about. Yeah. And, and um, I've started uh, doing a talk that I called um, Create Your Health Investment Plan. Right. Where I equate... Creating a health investment plan is very, very similar to creating a wealth investment plan. And, you know, we as a community focus on, on that wealth aspect and we kind of work hard towards it. And we have a very detailed plan around every single aspect of wealth. We know kind of where things are, in, are um, uh, invested. We know kind of that I need to diversify. We know uh you know that uh, there's a portfolio that i'm monitoring you know to kind of look at stuff and things like that when it comes to health you can actually use the same principles that you are using in your wealth investment plan for your health investment plan and and so i do this talk as a matter of fact i've got one um um schedule for tomorrow at noon 
uh, where I talk to people about how they can do that. And, and it's very telling because each of those strategies from investing for wealth can be used for investing for health. And you just have to know what those parameters are and how to apply those techniques you know, for your health as well. So I hope um, uh, you know, that's something that people can start by simply joining and by um, you know, making a change um, in a dramatic way by looking at those techniques. And like, just to reiterate, how can someone join the program that you mentioned? It, can it be an online thing or do you have to be on in the Bay Area? Um, no, so we have participants uh, in our program from 38 states of the United States. Wow. Uh, so you can be anywhere or the program is delivered virtually and using telehealth. And so, um, but it's, it's a lifestyle education program. So we can just connect with people on the phone or Zoom and talk about that and be able to kind of coach them through it uh, and educate them through it. And all of our workshops are online, et cetera. So nobody has to come to a physical location. We have found that that actually works well yeah. because people would complain that, hey, I have to come and visit you so I can't do my exercise, <laughs> uh, you know, because they've lost the commute time. Right. But now, of course, there is no such excuse. They are with us. We kind of guide them through it. Uh, and and it's, a, it's an intensive program in the sense that you connect with the coach um, uh, you know, several times during the whole year. Uh, and you can go to our website, which is www.southasianheartcenter.org. And um, it's, it's a great site, gives you all of this knowledge that we have talked about today. Uh, you can go online and sign up right there. Uh, and, and the cost of the program is very, very affordable uh, for most. We've kind of brought it down so that it's accessible to everybody. And if there's any financial hardships, um, then of course, as a nonprofit, we are we provide that uh, benefit to individuals as well. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. And I hope to our listeners, this is really you know helpful information, especially on how to sign up for this program because I think it's a really important thing that a lot of us need, um, you know, t for for our families, for ourselves. Yeah, thank you, Ashish, for being on our episode. Uh, we loved having you. And I'm so happy to have heard some of the tips that you brought up as something that I personally have already tried to start incorporating into my own household with my parents. And even I have two younger brothers just emphasizing the importance of taking care of your health despite being busy college students, busy high school students, because um, most of the time what happens is that when we get filled up with work, we start to neglect our own health and that's never, you know, a never good path to start on at a young age. Um, so, and even learning more about future tips for other extended family members, um, especially regarding diet and exercise, um, small steps definitely make a huge difference in the long run. So thank you for that. Um, so please, for everyone, check out the South Asian Heart Center's work on their website or on their Instagram. We hope that this episode was filled with as much new knowledge for you as it was for us. And, and you can... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, and join the Brown Woman Health community by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle's at Brown Woman Health. And we'll hope that you will join us to keep up with our content and learn more about each topic and interact with us. But thank you so much um, for this episode again. Ashish, just to reiterate what Ritika said, like, 
I think this is a really, really, really important topic. And I'm so glad that we were able to meet and you were able to, you know, give us your time and knowledge to share with all our listeners. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for making this important within the community. You are like a messenger for us. And, and, and we really appreciate the time that you've spent thank to understand you. this.